0: We are going to look at like one of the most Old, Testament-y, Old Testament passages we could It's a prophecy of a locust plague uh, From the book of Joel So the prophet Joel um, So nothing like um, locusts descending from on high um, To think what in the world, why on earth would we look at that So we're going to see what it has to do with us So Joel, I'll give you some context uh, Joel is ministering to God's people uh, and it's a period of rebellion, um, and he is warning them that a locust plague and, and or slash commentators are sort of split down the middle. Is he talking about like literal locusts the whole time, or is he also talking about an army? And there's a metaphor that seems to run back and forth. Um, he's warning them of impending judgment, and there's already some, lo- the, some locusty judgment that's already happened to the people. So to give you some context, look at verse 4 of chapter 1. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And he's naming, essentially, these are different Hebrew words for different breeds. Like, what's the word for people who study bugs? Bugs. Entomologist. Entomologists like Joel's like the original entomologist or whatever. He's like these are like different varieties of oh, locust, and he's being very specific about the, the you know the species of locust that will come. Um, and then okay, let's pick up at chapter two on the next slide, and Joel is going to be talking in a big term about the, the concept of repentance. Uh, that's what Joel is really about, and it's a very long passage and a little intense, but we're going to read it, okay? Joel chapter 2, starting verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through all the years of all generations, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses. They enter through the wilderness like a thief. The earthquakes before them the heavens tremble the sun and the moon are darkened and their stars withdraw their shining the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great he who exalts he who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it so, like, imagine that you were an Israelite in the original context, and you know, like, we've kind of been worshiping these other things or doing these other things. And then the prophet of God comes and speaks to you in this way. At this moment, like, you're like, oh, my God, like, what? This is bad. You're afraid. You're nervous. And then verse 12 picks up. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Let me stop right there and then we'll, we'll pray. Lord God, we, we need your help. Um, we need um, insight to understand this. Please be with us now. Help us to hear this bizarro old text with new ears. Would you speak tonight and transform us wherever we're coming from? I pray this in your name. Amen. So I have a question for you. What do you think God wants from you? Especially if you consider yourself a Christian, a believer. Um, If you do not consider yourself a Christian or believer, if God exists, what is it that you think that God wants from you? And just sort of hang on to that. And I imagine your answer is something like, he wants me to be a good person. Maybe he wants me to obey him and so on and so forth. And I think those answers are kind of right. But what I want to talk about tonight, what I think this passage is is getting at, is that what God wants from us is repentance. Now that word repentance is sort of an old word and sort of a bad word. It has sort of negative connotations. Like, like, you know, you walk out onto the terrace and shout out to the crowds teeming by and you shout, (laughs) repent. Repent ye this day, you know, or something like that. Uh, you know, it's going to be like, what? Why is he yelling at us? And what's his problem? Um, the scary and old, antiquated thing. Um, basically, the idea of repentance is, is simply this, of turning away from what the Bible will often call sin or rebellion or transgression, this thing that is corrupting and hurting and harming yourself and others in the creation and is a rebellion against God, to turn away from this, And to turn back towards God. And move towards him. In his way. Saying I I want to leave that behind. And I want to be with you. And live in your world your way. That's basically what repentance is. Um, Look at verse 12 again. And Joel doesn't use the word repentance. But he's talking about it. He's saying. Return to me God says. With all of your heart. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Tearing your garments. Was this idea of. I'm going to demonstrate my repentance by ripping my garment. I'm going to do this. And he was saying the people were doing that. They were showing this external sign. He's like, it's not enough just to do the outward deed. I don't expect you just to outwardly obey me. He's saying, come back to me with all of your heart. Tear your heart, not your garment. So that's the idea. Okay. And all through the Bible, you're going to see that word. If you read it, especially like the first sermon Jesus ever preached. First words out of his mouth. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, that's, that's what Jesus said. So this isn't just an Old Testament thing. But I want to look at how. Here's the idea of turning back to God. But I think Joel gives us at least three motives for doing that turn. For, for coming and, and doing the about face. Doing that turn. And I think, I want to call them three things. I'll start with R. Isn't that convenient? Um, uh, God's righteousness, God's reputation, and God's reward. God's righteousness, His reputation, and His reward. Okay, you with me? That was the tedious theological explanation intro, and here we go. And he even cut out some historical stuff just to spare you. Um, it's in the notes. God's righteousness, his character is what I mean by that. And the first element of his character that's supposed to turn us back to him, that is screaming at us loud and clear, is his justice. That whole long poem that we read about. Locusts blocking out the sun and descending and eating everything in their path and completely laying waste to the land. That is this picture of judgment, of God's justice coming in. Um, Here's the quick application. If you are a presumptuous person, and I think very much in our modern world, we have this sort of casual, aloof posture towards God. I mean, like, for example, if when I asked, what do you think God wants from you? And your answer in your mind was, just to try my best. Just do your best. Um, or, like, yeah, God and I are cool. Like, we're fine. Everything's great. Like, why would it not be? <laughs> like, I'm kind of great. <laughs> so, why would it? You know, to see that self righteousness in that notion that, yeah, maybe if you're kind of shrugging your shoulder, yeah, whatever. Like, Let's read that passage to yourself at some point about a locust plague coming on God's people. Like these aren't these aren't like the bad people over here, you know? Like the, the enemy nation. These are His own people. That this uh, passage that this prophet is speaking to. God is serious. He's a serious person. He is holy. He is other. This is very intimidating, freshmen. If you come to small group, you're going to look at a passage that talks about that this week, Thursday night. Shameless plug. Um, um, and. I will say this, if the notion of God being holy and judging is like an obstacle for you to believe in Christianity, I get that. I'm not going to address that deeply tonight, but in two weeks when we preach on Obadiah, which I'm sure you've never heard a sermon on ever. It's like a page long, um, the whole book. Um, it's like one, one slide. Um, the, we're going to d- d- deal with that much more directly, so come back in two weeks. But if you are presumptuous and aloof and whatever, laissez-faire. Hear the locusts. Listen to God's judgment, His holiness. But there's another thing about His character that we see in this passage. It's not just His justice, but also His grace. His grace. Grace is when He gives us things that we don't deserve in kindness. When He gives open forgiveness. Quick application. Some of you are presumptuous and assume you don't need to repent. Others of you are afraid to. You're reluctant. You're not assuming that you're the best thing since sliced bread. You're thinking, God would never accept me. I'm afraid, I'm ashamed, I'm scared. How could I come to Him in light of what I've done, what I've thought, what I've said, what I've felt? I'm unclean. I'm naked and ashamed. Verse 13, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So saying, God loves you. He is gracious and kind. and. The God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, we have this beautiful wedding of justice and holiness and grace. I don't know anywhere else where those two things coexist so perfectly together. You can either be like the wishy-washy, hey, everything's fine, no I'm okay, you're okay, or like self-righteous and judgmental. But in Christianity, God puts those two attributes together and they kiss most beautifully at the cross of Jesus. The whole Bible leads up to this. This is a little foretaste here in Joel of what's coming at the cross of Jesus, which says God is so just and holy that he's going to deal very seriously with the human condition such that it requires the Son of God to die. That's crazy. That is crazy justice and holiness. And he loves you so much and is so gracious and forgiving that he's going to do that in your place so you don't have to. I don't know. If you know another place to find that idea, come tell me. I want to hear about it. It's, it's, it's amazing. Earth-shattering. Anyway. Now, some, for, some, for some church history. I cut some out earlier for the second time. Uh, but now, want to origin. you ever heard of origin, the early church father? living lived in like the 200s, like a long, long time ago. One huge element of repentance is the idea of confession, of admitting, here's what I've done. Here's who I am. This is bad. Okay? Um, origin referred to confession. I love this phrase. He said, confession is the vomit of the soul, which really hits me freshly this week. I got very sick on last Thursday. (laughs) It's a very unpleasant experience. Um, Confession is the vomit of the soul. Um, My sister and my brother-in-law used to live in San Francisco, and their pastor there, his name's Fred, and uh, he he told this story once um, about when he was on a flight. Like he's from Florida, and they were flying back to San Francisco. This really long flight, and his son hadn't been feeling so great. He was about seven eight years old, and like he thought like everything's cool. He's gonna we're gonna make it, you know. And they get to San Francisco, and like the plane is landing, and he looks over his son, and he look and he sees the face. was <laughs> a parent. Like I've got four kids, and there's just this moment where you just know, like all right, here we go. <laughs> so we thought we could avoid this, but we can't. And uh, he said, you know, he. He saw him and he was like, "Man, this is a perfect dad save moment." You know, he pulls out the barf bag, gets it ready, wheels touch down, and the son just leans over and just. But he said it was amazing, like perfectly into the bag. And he just goes <laughs> and he caught it. His son finished. He's like, "You done?" Yeah. Leans up, like ties up the bag, and he like, does the little sealer, like sets it away. Like people barely notice. And he said, "Like his son," like he handed his son a napkin, like he was ready to go. So the son, like, oh, no. he wiped his face. He took a deep breath and he looked at his dad and he said, Thanks for catching my throw up, dad. <laughs> Thanks for catching. Uh, what in the world? Can't make that up. <laughs> it was a beautiful moment. <laughs> Confession is the vomit of the soul. What is the worst part about throwing up? It's that right before, right? It's that thing that I know I need to do this, but I don't want to. And then like the the moment is pretty bad too, but that afterwards, that relief. When we delay confession and repentance, we're just punishing ourselves. We're making it worse. But how much quicker would we be if we knew that we had a loving father who was just right there ready to catch our throw up? He's not surprised. I, I see it coming, buddy. You just need to throw up. Like, just do it, man. It's, good. it's not getting any better. Just let's go. I got the bag. Let's do this. I'll, I'll rub your back and give you a Sprite. But it's, come on. Let's go. Let's see it. And I'll tie it up and put it away. You have a father like that. God is gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. So out with it. Turn. That's, part, that's how why we repent. Because of his righteousness, his grace, and his justice. Second, his reputation. Let's go verse 15 and look at a couple things. Verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Okay, a couple of things about repentance we see here. First of all, it's urgent. You already said, blow the trumpet, call an assembly, get the nursing babies in the room. If you are on your honeymoon, postpone it and get here. Like, it's in, the bridegroom leave his chamber, the bride her, uh, you know? So it's urgent. And second, it's collective. Again, like babies too, get the elders in here, I'll call a solemn assembly. It's not just an individual thing. We, if you were from America, you were just born, it's just in you, it's just in the water that we're just like rugged individuals, and it's me. Me and God. Me and me. Me and my job. Me and school. It's all about me. Israelites didn't think that way. They thought like us. They they thought about individuals. But they also had this collective whole idea. And if you're from a different country, you understand that probably. At least if you're from a non-Western country. Um, But this idea in the Bible is that it's a collective action. Um, And it involves generational stuff. But quickly, let's look at Blow the trumpet. When you look around, let's think about the collective. When you think about collective Christianity, let's just stick with America. When do American Christians tend to publicly blow the trumpet about need of repentance? Those guys need to repent. Like now, we need to stop that thing from happening. Because some people are doing some things the Bible says they shouldn't do. And so we need to stop them. Right? Heard that narrative? Played that tape? Seen that news clip? (laughs) Right? Right? Sometimes that is the thing to do. Like we'll look at Micah later where it talks about seeking justice, stopping corruption. If somebody is, is harming some other people, like all these categories and areas where we ought to be like engaging the world and trying to put things to rights. Okay. We should do that. However, in this passage, Joel is talking to God's people about blowing the trumpet about themselves. That is very rare. Unfortunately. I have seen a few examples of it lately. You guys ever heard of Matt Chandler? He's kind of like a celebrity Christian pastor. And like he totally blew it. And they went after somebody and like disciplined this lady in their church that they really shouldn't have. And then she like was talking about it. And usually there's this massive cover up when big churches do that. Like protect the rock star. And he wrote this whole like. He wrote this whole thing about how wrong he was. And listed out the different ways in which he had sinned against his church, his elders, and his lady. It was awesome. Um, Rare. I've actually experienced it. I'm part of a denomination, like a Presbyterian denomination. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. RUF is affiliated with that denomination. It's that denomination's official ministry. This summer at our General Assembly, which is like the Senate or something of, the, of church stuff, it's like the most boring. It's like church C-SPAN, if you can imagine <laughs> how horrible that is. But this amazing thing happened this year, and I missed it this year because we had other travel plans. But at our General Assembly, my denomination, basically there was like some significant elements of racism involved in the founding of our denomination that a lot of us didn't know about. But some church historians within our denomination and outside have exposed and brought into the light. And there was this call to repentance. And um, it was like the latest night. I mean, they went to like 1 in the morning or something crazy like that because people kept making motions to extend the time. It's all like Robert's Rules, like, you know, uh, call the question or, you know, what are you, like these like people go into the microphone. And people were standing in line to pray. And confess our sin of, of, of racism, particularly in the civil rights era and the foundation of our denomination and segregation being involved with that in some cases, including like the corporate idea. But even older pastors who were like 70 years old, like went to the microphone and said, I wasn't like actively like persecuting people. And I would have always said I'm not a racist, but I watched what was happening. And I didn't care. I didn't care at all. And this is a really cool thing. And I missed it. So, I was uh, Anyway, repentance is corporate and it's urgent. Now it's really funny; we sort of miss the urgency. I like to brag on, "Hey, we repented!" Great. Forty years later, like it was forty years ago, but but still they recognize that there's a need for this. I thought that was really lovely, um, and good. But repentance is the call. See, we tend to think we answer that question: What does God want from me? They want me to be perfect. Just this morning, I'm dropping my kids off at school, and I'm having conversations with other parents. And I delay telling someone that I'm a pastor as long as humanly possible, because of how awkward it becomes right after I say I'm a minister. And it's like, and one of two things happens: I like don't want to talk anymore. I don't want to talk to you, uh, weirdo. And um, or I feel they don't really do this, but I feel like now that they know I'm a minister, I must be perfect. Like my neighborhood, I need to have the trash out on the right day and get the cans in right away. I need to be the most righteous man in the neighborhood Is how I feel, which is absurd. And many of you feel that way. Like on your hall, you like came, especially if you're a freshman, you're like, I'm a Christian and I've got a witness. I've got to maintain my testimony, like whatever that means. And, and you're afraid of messing up when maybe, yes, of course, we should be obeying God and loving him. But maybe what God wants is your repentance. Almost even more. Maybe you don't need to be the most righteous person on the hall. Maybe you need to be the most repentant person on the hall. The quick to vomit kid. Metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically. Um, rend your hearts and not your garments. Repentance is the call. What he's saying is tear your heart. That It's not just the message that you say, but the manner and posture of your heart in which you say it. I want your heart, God is saying. Return to me with all your heart. And our repentance or lack thereof reflects to the world the reputation of God. That was our main point, wasn't it? Reputation. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? When we repent, it affects the reputation of God to others. People are forming their opinion of God based on our repentance or lack thereof. Um, Another church history story. You ever heard of Dwight Moody? Moody Bible Institute? He was a a pastor in the 1800s, Um, lots of people, he was a famous evangelist, lots of people came to faith under his preaching. He was friends with Abe Lincoln, like Abe Lincoln taught Sunday school at one of his, like came to visit him and taught at this thing, it's kind of cool. Um, But this big burly man with a big beard, and he would preach to huge crowds, he had this booming voice, you know, before PA systems and microphones. And was kind of famous for that. Just kind of this hulking, intimidating figure. Well, his son later in life when he was an adult, people asked him, so like, hey, how did you, how did you become a believer? Like, when did you believe the gospel? And, um, you know, it wasn't like at one of his dad's, it wasn't at church. It wasn't when his dad was, was preaching to a crowd. He said um, when he was a little kid, uh, there was a gathering at their house. And his son got in trouble, like did something. And Dwight Moody was like, yelled at him. And sent him to bed in front of people. And he hadn't really done anything wrong. Like he just wrongly, just harshly disciplined him in front of people and sent him to bed. He said he was laying there in bed for a while awake. And a while later his dad came and he said he could see him he was standing in the doorway. He's this big dude. He'd like to fill a doorway. He was like, son? And, and Moody's son pretended to be asleep like he was afraid. So he just laid there and breathed. He said, Dwight Moody came into the room, knelt down beside his bed, and whispered, I'm sorry, son. And then quietly prayed and wept. He said, that night I knew the gospel was true. Repentance shapes people's reputation, or their sense of God's reputation. It forms God's, Reputation And in Joel, it's cool that people do repent. Like the story goes on. And um, verse 18 of chapter 2, we see his, his righteousness, his reputation, but then last his reward. His reward. Um, so people are repenting. And then it says, The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and no more. I will, make you, will I make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from <laughs> you, which is like the enemy invader, and will drive him into a parched and desolate land. Um, for time, let's skip to verse 25. So he's sending out the enemy. He's, and it's, the, these next couple of verses are like, it's going to rain a lot, and there's going to be fruit. Um, and Old Testament people are like, that's the best! Um, <laughs> raisin cakes! Um, and uh, the... be put to shame. I love that idea. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. I know people for whom that verse has basically saved their marriage. After years of stuff going wrong, that notion that God is saying, I'm going to restore to you what has been lost. Though there are consequences and though there has been difficulty, I'm going to bring it back. The kingdom comes through repentance. Restoration comes Shame is removed. Repentance undoes much, much harm. And you know this because you've experienced, whether you're a Christian or not, you've experienced the power of repentance in your own life. Ever been alienated from a family member or a close friend? And one of you finally said, I am so sorry. And the other person forgave you or you forgave them. And it was suddenly okay. And in some cases, in fact, many, if not most cases, the relationship becomes better after the repentance and the, and the reconciliation has taken place than it was before anything wrong was ever done. Because you kind of trust each other more now. Like, I really hurt you, and then you forgave me. So, like, we're kind of closer now. Like, I can kind of trust you in a way that I couldn't before. Isn't that beautiful? You've experienced that, but the same thing is true with God. Or you know this to be or you know this to be the case because you have a dad who didn't do what Dwight Moody did. Who never said he was sorry. Who never got teared up about what he had done to you and you desperately needed him to. And so now your heart is hard. Because someone else damaged the reputation of God to you. Maybe not your dad, maybe a pastor, maybe me. Last spring, sorry. Could be. And you know the harm that's been done. So the restoration that takes place, but then also his, the Redeemer. Like God redeems things. He says, I'm going to dwell with you. I am in the, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. Israel meaning largely my people. I am with you. It's not just the reward that comes from God. is not just that He's going to give us our grain and our oil and take back the things that the locusts did. And remove the damage, the, the damage done by our sin. But the, the the greatest reward of God is God's presence himself. is actual reconciliation with him. I dwell in the midst of my people. In the very next verse, verse 28. It's not on the slot. Sorry, Isaac, I didn't send it to you. But that's the, the passage that's fulfilled in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 2, where he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The ultimate fulfillment of God dwelling among his people is first Jesus taking a body and dwelling with us. And then after Jesus dies and rises from the dead, he sends his own spirit to live within his people, to dwell amongst them. Lots there. If this is all new to you, let's talk. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God's own presence is the greatest reward, the reconciliation between him. Relationship restored. All right, I'll close with one last story. Um, Talking about my California friend pastors this week for some reason. I've got a friend. His name is Tim. He's uh, currently planting a new church in Los Angeles, uh, California, and um, as opposed to the other Los Angeles you were thinking of, than the one in California. And um, he, but he used to be a youth pastor in Alabama, and uh, he and I were friends in seminary. And um, he, uh, when he was in Alabama, he had a, a friend in the church. He was a fairly well-to-do businessman, um, and. That family owned a farm, and they owned a Jeep Scout. Do you know what a Jeep Scout is? It's, just, it's a cool, like, kind of hulking Jeep. They're really old. They, they don't make them anymore. They're hard to buy parts for if you go and try to buy one online. Like, they're very expensive and kind of a collector's item, so to speak, for people who who like mudden. Um, and so that's what we call it in Alabama, mudden. I'm going to pronounce it with a G now, mudding. Do you know what mudden is? Were you driving the mud? Right. (laughs) With four-wheel drive. And so they were like, Tim, it's your day off. Take the scout. Go out onto the farm. It it was after a rain. Like, just go to town. Just have fun, buddy. So, you know, be careful. So he takes it. And he was like, Ben, I was just pounding that thing. Like, he was just going on jumps and going through deep mud and trying to drive through creeks and all this stuff, and he gets it stuck, like down in the bog, and he's like in trouble. He makes it back. This is before cell phones. He like gets to a phone, calls a friend. The friend comes with his four-wheel drive. They hook up the chains, and he's like, it's not coming out, and then finally he pulls the, he pulls the scout out of the mud. It's, like, so relieved, like, great, thank you so much. Gets back in the Jeep. It does it again. Like, he pounds, like, we're going out again. Like, so he's, like, him and his friends. So he's, like, still, It's like, beating the thing to death. And then finally he hits a deep enough mud bog to where he just goes so deep into it that, like, the engine is, like, submerged. So like floods the engine, like, comp- Like, it was very clear, like, this, the car is dead. Like, it is, and it's never coming back. It's, like, oh, no. Like, this is bad. So he, he gets out. He goes somewhere. He hoses off. He, he he drives his regular car to the man's office. He's like, I know. I just got to do this quick. I just got to tell him what happened. And he's like, the worst part is, he's like, it wasn't like a teenage indiscretion. You know, it wasn't like, like, he's like, I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I did it anyway. And he was like, you know, 26 years old. Like, this is like old enough to know better, but he just did it. So he goes into the guy's office. You know, he's a little cleaned up, but there's still like mud cake to him. And he's like, Jeff, like, I broke the scalp. Like... It's done. And um, he said his friend, I think his name was Jeff, just started laughing. <laughs> like he just laughed at him. And then Tim's like trying to make up. He's like, no, I'm really sorry. I really am. I'm going to pay for it. And then the guy laughed even harder. He was like, I'm an elder at your church. I know exactly how much you make. Like, you're like a youth pastor in a little town in Alabama. You can't pay for it. Like, like, you can't pay for it. Uh, Don't don't worry about it. Like, it's done. And then his friend says to him, like, he's laughing. He's like, Tim, you know, I'm really glad you stopped by. I've got something for you. Like, gets up from his desk, and there's a closet. He walks over to the closet and opens it. And the two of them would go hunting together. And he pulls out this, like, brand-new Remington rifle that he had bought for Tim as a gift. It's like, hey, I've got a gift for you. Like, here's this new rifle. And it's just, like, what just happened? But that's the idea here in Joel. Like, God's people have just, like, wrecked the Jeep again and again. They've been warned. They know better. And he is saying, relent. Turn to me with all your hearts. Ren your hearts and not your garments. And I will forgive you. I will receive you. I will accept you and then give you all that much more. He's given us not just forgiveness and like, hey, it's okay. He's given us himself. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the Remington, but way, way better. So turn to him. Let's pray.